Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, my name is Chris Chaw, and uh, the pastor of Life Groups here, and uh, we'll preach occasionally from time to time here. Um, and uh, I know that uh, maybe there are some of you in here um, <clears throat> that remember, but uh, a while ago I had preached through um, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and I just figured, hey, you know, I've got another opportunity to preach. Why don't we just close out this uh, great book? Um, so we're going to close out with verses 9 through 14. Um, and as you, as you look here at Ecclesiastes, I pray that uh, you would appreciate a couple things, all right? One, Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature, right? <clears throat> and I know that many of us are um, probably in different places of the Scripture. Maybe you have a preference even as to what books of the Bible you like to read. Maybe for some of you, you like to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Gospels, or some of you like to read Paul's letters, and um, maybe some of you um, like uh, uh, the Old Testament prophets, and maybe there are some even weirder folks that just spend their time in Leviticus, right? Um, but, the, but, but the point is this, is that all of Scripture is God's Word, amen? And just as, as humans, we need nutrition, we need we, we do need a balanced diet, right? We also, we also have to understand this is the word of God, and we can get nutrition from, from all sources, especially wisdom literature, all right? So um, when you look back at Ecclesi- Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, you'll see that really the point of that, of all that imagery, is that, you know what? Our, our lives are fleeting. We're all getting old. We're all going to die, right? And this life that we live better be lived for the glory of God. And it's here now in verses 9 through 14 that the that this editor is going to give us his concluding remarks. So we're going to begin diving into that. <clears throat> but before that, we know that uh, humans, all of us, mankind, we always have longed for autonomy. I believe because of our sinful nature, this is natural in all of us, right? From the very beginning, we've wanted autonomy. Uh, there, there are some young folks here, but how many of you um, remember when you were young, right? And you remember the time when uh, you just couldn't wait to get out of your parents' authority? Is there anyone? Anyone here? Only like, okay, five people. rest of you are lying, right? Um, but th- even there was a day that you like were looking forward to that you were like, I can't wait to like get out of here or I can't wait till I'm going to be on my own and I don't have to call in or report in or you know what? I can eat the food I want to eat, eat the food I want to eat. I can drink what I want to drink and, and so forth. We all understand that and the list goes on and independence isn't necessarily a bad thing but this ultimate desire for independence like anything else can become an idol in our life in our in our quest for autonomy it can often lead us to the point where you and i want to cut ties from our creator we don't desire his rule and if we're really honest with ourselves you know i'd be the first one to raise my hand here um there has been a point in all of our lives in which we've rejected his reign and rule in our life. Maybe we feel that uh, his rule restricts us from our passion and the pleasures that this world offers us. And there are times in our life when you and I, we just don't want the reign and rule of God. And I tell you that uh, one of, if not the most important things in life, is our perspective of God. If you are an atheist, you do not fear God. You're a law unto yourself, and this will affect the way that you live your life. If you claim to be a Christian, but yet your life doesn't reflect that you fear God, then you are really a functional atheist. And you and I can, you know, if we're really honest with ourselves, there have been many points in our own lives in which we claim to be followers of Christ, 
in our belief and in our profession, but our actions really proved that we were, we were functional atheists. Maybe it was depending upon yourself and your own ability to, to get through a situation. Maybe it was just being overly consumed with worry and totally doubting the provision of God. But we all see that. And we also know that Israel failed in this capacity. At Mount Sinai, they heard, the, they heard God's law, you shall not make yourself an idol, you shall not worship them. A few weeks later, while still at Mount Sinai, they made a golden calf and worshipped it. And throughout history, this has been the battle. The editor of this passage in Ecclesiastes is going to remind us of a simple truth and lesson. This is something that you and I need to understand and you and I need to heed to as well. That all of us should fear God. And that if we truly fear God, this will be evident in our attitudes, in our actions. So before unpacking the central idea, the editor here first praises the teacher and his body of work, and this was very customary to his time. Look at verse 9. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying, and arranging many proverbs with great care. In our time, we place uh, endorsements on the cover of a book or in a foreword. In those days, a recommendation was given at the end of the scroll in a postscript or what's called an afterword. And then the writer mentions wise. Wisdom in the Old Testament is not theoretical, but rather it's, it's practical wisdom. It's insight into how to make the most of each day. Look at some of these verses. <clears throat> Psalm 111.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and all those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. This is all from wisdom literature, okay? Proverbs 1.7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So we look at this teaching from the Scripture. We see that the source of true wisdom is the fear of the Lord. This is where it begins, and from there it impacts every crook and cranny of your life. It should. But this teacher doesn't keep this wisdom to himself. He He shares this knowledge with others, and this was a careful process done with diligence. He carefully weighed, studied, and arranged the Proverbs, and they're here for our benefit today. And as you you look at some of the wisdom literature, and you look at some of the Old Testament poetry, I pray that you would not be turned off. Can I tell you, I'm going to be honest, right? I hated poetry until it started studying the Bible. I would not have anything to do with poetry. I didn't, like, I remember writing haikus and all those different things, and it, it just couldn't do it. I don't, like, I, I really don't have a creative bone inside of my body, all right? And uh, it wasn't until I understood, wow, like, all the wisdom literature used poetic devices. And, and, and lots of the time, it's used to communicate an attribute of God. Like, God communicates through poetry so that we would understand him better, right? Isn't that cool? Like, um, as the deer pants for water, all right? So, you know, so our soul what? Pants for thee, right? I mean, that's, that's poetic. It's a description of, of you know, how, how our hearts should be yearning for God. I mean, the fact that God calls himself father, right? What does a father mean? Father, I mean, you can't have a childless father, right? I mean, God wants to relate to us in that capacity and that, hey, I'm a father that has children. The Lord is my shepherd, Right? I mean, and I'm so thankful for these poetic devices. So as we look at this, and as we look at these proverbs and different writings, like, appreciate this, this, uh, this genre of literature. It's, it's really a beautiful masterpiece because it's written by the most uh, beautiful and wonderful creator. Amen? 
So Proverbs is a broad term and included not only what we think of as Proverbs, but it included parables, it included riddles, it included sayings. So when the teacher wrote this book, much wisdom literature existed in and around Israel. So he would weigh these existing wisdom sayings. He would balance them, right, and give his own spin on it and evaluate whether they reflected true wisdom. Next, he would study them, again, examine them carefully, and finally he would arrange them. That is, he would set them into a certain order, and thus we see these large literary units in the Bible, okay? Verse 10 tells us the second way in which the teacher taught the people knowledge. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So the teacher has weighed, studied, arranged these proverbs with great care, but he did so very poetically and very artistically. And the words he used were pleasing. Some of our favorite passages come from Ecclesiastes. And some of the great poetic verses come from Ecclesiastes. What about um, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 5? This is uh, the author talking about um, how there are seasons of life uh, where he says the sun rises and the sun goes down. Ecclesiastes 3.2, um, this is a central poem about the times, right? That there's a time for everything. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up, a time to kill, and a time to heal, right? And really the point of that Ecclesiastes 3, that whole poetic unit, is that, that God is sovereign over all the times, and he's worthy to be praised. But isn't that so much better that he uses the poetic devices versus saying God is sovereign, he's, he's in control, Right? He's using, I mean, like, we go to see a movie and there's points communicated, and we're not looking for the movie to communicate propositional truths, right? We want to see a story. We want to see the cinematography. We want to see the action. And it's right here in the scriptures. Ecclesiastes 12, 3. What about the ending poem about age and death? Instead of saying, hey, you're, you're all old and you're going to die one day, it, he uses imagery in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. Talking about how, you know, as we get older, our, 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 our legs begin to shake and, you know, we're, we're getting old. But what about the language used throughout Ecclesiastes? He uses that human life is but a vapor or, or, or but a mist. It's here one moment, gone the next. It's really, there's really no substance to it. You know, you can't really, like a vapor, you can't really grab onto it. And he just uses all these really awesome artistic and poetic uh, devices here. And think of all the other crisp proverbs used throughout Ecclesiastes. The teacher indeed sought to use <coughs> pleasing words. But he was after much more than entertaining us by using pleasing words. He has a very serious message to convey. And that's why the second half of verse 10 reads this. And uprightly he wrote the words of truth. He did this to impart words of truth and he did it uprightly. And that simply means that he did so honestly and correctly. This isn't just like paint, like thrown onto the wall, okay? This is stuff that has been carefully put there, okay, to communicate wisdom to us, to communicate truth. Verse 11. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. So the shepherd who gave these collected sayings could, could be God himself. The teacher also said in Ecclesiastes 2.26 that God has given wisdom and knowledge. Any knowledge and wisdom you have has been given to you by God. Any attribute that you are aware of God has been given to you by God. He's a source of all wisdom and knowledge. God was also known in Israel as a shepherd of Israel. Psalm 80 verse 1. 
David declared, the Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23. And God has ultimately given us these collected saints to guide us into green pastures. In Psalm 23, David explains the shepherd's rod and staff were there to comfort him. Here in verse 11, the teacher has in mind a more painful tool of the trade. These wise wise words were like goads. Goads were ancient uh, cattle prods. They were large pointed sticks which the shepherd would poke into an animal to get them to move in a certain direction or to get them to turn around. Goads work because they cause pain. The sayings of the wise, likewise, can be painful at times. If you agree with that, say amen. You know the saying, the truth hurts. It was painful to hear the teacher say, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 1-2. It was shocking to the hearers of his day to hear him say this, for what happens to the children of men and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. Ecclesiastes 3.19. It was devastating to hear him proclaim, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Ecclesiastes 7.20. But when we look at these goads, these sayings that are like those proddings, they were meant to spur Israel to action and guide them in the right direction. The good shepherd could also refer to the Messiah. This saying, one shepherd, is used only two other times in the Old Testament. One in Ezekiel, it refers to the promised son of David, the shepherd king. In the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as the good what? The good shepherd, John 10, 11. And the good shepherd also used his words as goads. Do you remember some of the hard sayings of Jesus? Look at some of them. Matthew seven fifteen. Jesus said, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. How about in Mark 8, 33, when Peter tried to keep Jesus from his road of suffering, he looks right at Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. It's probably the most inspirational, motivational speech there recorded in the scriptures, right? Get behind me, Satan. Let's look at Paul. He describes his conversion experience in Acts 26, 13 through 14. It's written here, at midday, O king, this is Paul speaking, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when, he, when, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Really interesting, right? It kind of sounds funny. But Jesus' words, why are you persecuting me, hurt Paul like goads hurt cattle. And they made Saul reverse direction, right? That encounter changed his life. The goads turned Saul the persecutor into Paul the missionary. The sayings of the wise are indeed like goads. But the writer also says that these collected sayings, that everything he's writing, they're also compared to nails, And nails here refers to uh, solid tent pegs. Tent pegs or stakes firmly pounded pounded into the ground to keep the shepherd's tent stable, to keep it from blowing away in a storm. So what is he saying? He's saying that these collected sayings give stability and security to one's life. 
Think of the stability and focus for our lives provided by the teacher, teacher's repeated pleasing, pleading I'm sorry, that we fear God, that we stand in awe of the Almighty God. Ecclesiastes 3.14, Ecclesiastes 5.7, Ecclesiastes 7.18, Ecclesiastes 8.12. Think of the comfort provided by his teaching that it will be well with those who fear God, Ecclesiastes 8.12. Think of the security provided by his teaching that God is in control and that he set all the times. Right? Remember that, that simple truth that God is great so we don't have to be in control? He's the author. Of, I mean, he, he invented time. So we, we should trust that he has some good control and understanding of it, right? What about seizing the day? That's throughout Ecclesiastes. What about enjoying life? That's throughout Ecclesiastes. Enjoying God's good gifts. And these are all like nails. They provide stability and security. And the goads prod us to movement in the right direction. The nails firmly fixed provide stability and security. So we both need goads and nails, all right? And if you're in the Word, you completely understand what that means. Our precious editor continues in Ecclesiastes 12.12. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Beyond these collected sayings from the one shepherd... During that time, like today, there were tons of writings that were passed off as wisdom. And the editor wants to warn his readers to be careful with those other books. The warning is really for the sufficiency of the text. It's like he's saying, hey, guys, the wisdom, the wisdom is here, given by God. There's no need to look elsewhere. That's what he's saying. He continues, of making many books, there is no end. How true this is today. How many of you enjoy going to Barnes & Noble or some massive bookstore and you like walking through and look? I, I do too, right? And you'll go and you'll just, you know, you'll browse the aisles and, man, there's just a book on everything, right? There's a book on finance, on health, on wealth, on, you know, muscles, on, on cosmetics, on like, you know, how to eat a certain way, you know, like how to eat a certain diet. I mean, you name it. There's, you know, the religious section. There's, there's everything, right? And there's no shortage of, of books that we, that we have accessible to us. In fact, right, even most PhDs have to write a book, you know. That's their dissertation um, in order to officially get their PhD, right? So we see our teacher here is evaluating the activity itself. Making many books is, is endless in, this, in the sense of leading nowhere. It's pointless. Then he continues. This is, a, this is a verse that I'm sure you're wondering why it wasn't in, like, our Awana curriculum, right? And much study is a weariness of the flesh, right? I'm sure this is a verse that you wish you had that you could give to your parents, right? Mom, dad, you know, much studying is, wor- is weariness of the flesh. Give me some space. Cut me some slack. But the point is this. Like making many books, much study is pointless, Much book learning leads only to weariness of the flesh. The teacher warned about this earlier in Ecclesiastes 10. He says, the toil of a fool wearies him. Like the teacher before him, the editor seeks balance. Wisdom is good, but it can be overdone. So our editor now, starting to come to a close here in verse 13, he says, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. So flat out, the theme of this is crystal clear. It's two words. What are they? Fear God. 
want to show you this through Ecclesiastes. He urges us to do this four times just to show you that this is central to, to, his, to his writing. Ecclesiastes 3.14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Ecclesiastes 5.7. For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Ecclesiastes 7.18. It's good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who God shall come out from both of them. Lastly, Ecclesiastes 8.12, Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God, because they fear before him. So it's pretty central, right? Fear God. But I wanted to read to you this definition of fearing God. It's from a theologian. And this is what he explains. He says this. To fear God is not to be terrified of God, but to stand in awe of him. God is the almighty creator. We are mere creatures. God is eternal. We are a finite vapor. God is sovereign. We are dependent. God is holy. We are sinners. It is only fitting that we stand in awe of the eternal almighty creator God. To fear God is to take God seriously, to acknowledge him in our lives as the highest good, to revere him, to honor and worship him, to center our entire lives around him. As Paul said to the philosophers in Athens, in him we live and move and have our being. That is what it means to fear God. So the question I pose to everyone in this room do you fear God? Do you genuinely fear God? So the editor is now going to qualify this. This is how we, this is, he's going to tell us, this is how you can know that you're fearing God. Three words. Keep his commandments. <laughs> Don't you love how scriptures are just straightforward and simple sometimes? Right? I mean, it's, it's, and God has made it so that we could understand. Thank God for that. But this one leads to another. Fearing God genuinely will lead to keeping his commandments. In other words, we demonstrate the fear of God in our lives by, by obeying his commandments. If Jesus is really our king, we'll submit to his rule and do what he says. Do you remember in Mark 1, when Jesus entered the scene, he said something so profound. He says, the kingdom of God. And when you see the words in the Gospels, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, they're interchangeable. They're the, they mean the same thing. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the Gospel. And this is so huge because when you and I think of kingdom, we think of a geographical location. We think of a castle uh, and we think of, you know, we, we, we have certain baggage that we bring to our understanding of kingdom. And just as the Jews of, of Jesus' day had a certain amount of baggage, right? They were, they were desiring and praying that the Messiah would, would liberate them from, from uh, social injustice. You know, they had an oppressor. Rome was, Rome was their oppressor. And in their mind, this, this, uh, this Messiah was going to liberate them from Rome. And they were going to reign with him. But whenever you see the kingdom of God in the scriptures, okay, I tell you what, it's a deep study, but it's understandable. It's speaking not of a geographical location, but
but it's speaking of the reign and rule of God. I used to think that Jesus was so passive in his fight against evil. And it wasn't until I started studying the kingdom that I understood, oh, my goodness, Jesus was not passive in his dealing with evil. He wasn't like, okay, I'm just going to die on the cross. No. When he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand, he's saying plan redemption is unfolding right before your eyes, and I'm going to tackle evil head on. And not only am I going to tackle it, I'm going to defeat evil. Can I get an amen? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reign and rule of God is at hand. That's why Jesus was going, performing miracles. He was tackling evil head on. He was saying, Satan is not the king of this world. I am the one king of this world. It's the reign and rule of God, and it's extending. And when people get saved, we see the evidence of the kingdom. When people get healed, when, um, I mean, when just miracles are happening, we're seeing the kingdom of God just break through earth. But with that teaching, it's also very humbling for myself. Because I often come before the Lord and have to repent. Because in my mind, I say, Jesus, I know you're king. Jesus, I know that you're ruling and reigning right now. That even though there's a future reality of you coming that's, that's involved with your second coming, your kingdom is here now. So that means, Jesus, that, that my life should be different. That what would my life look like if I led my family really believing that Jesus was ruling and reigning? What, if, what would my life look like if I really believed that Jesus was ruling and reigning in my relationships, in the conversations I have with people? I would totally understand that there aren't random things that happen and that God orchestrates events. How would I work my job if I really believed that Jesus was sitting on his throne and he was ruling and reigning? How about you guys? And we come to this importance of keeping his commandments. And this isn't just New Testament stuff, okay? Or this isn't just stuff that we found here in Ecclesiastes. It's already been, it's this whole, like, fearing God and keeping his commandments has already been linked by Moses. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12 through 13. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? And to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord for which I am commanding you today for your what? For your good. So now our editor gives us two reasons. Reason number one. This is the whole duty of man. The Hebrew does not have the word duty. So it reads literally that fearing God and keeping his commandments is the whole of everyone. It's our essence. God made us so that we would stand in awe of him and keep his commandments. And it's his design for us. Fearing God and keeping his commandments is God's plan for us. And when we do this, I believe it's the very best and fullest way of being human. So it's our design. We're made to fear God and to keep his commandments. Number two. God will judge everything. Verse 14, God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Jesus also had a few words to say about judgment. In Matthew 12, 36 to 37, he says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you'll be justified and by your words, you'll be condemned. 
And yet things have changed for New Testament Christians. We should keep God's commandments, but not because we dread judgment. John 3, 16. For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal, everlasting life. On the cross, we know that Jesus took God's punishment for our sin. We know that he took the full judgment of God on himself, but on our behalf. By doing this, we know that the penalty of sin had been paid. So dread of God's judgment is no longer a motivation to keep God's commandments. Moreover, check this out. The judge is our savior. You thought about that? The judge is our savior. Look at John 5, 22 and 24. Man, this verse has been just stirring worship in my heart all week. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to who? To the son. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. God's judgment is no longer a threat for Christians. So when I talk about fearing God and keeping his commandments, the motivation is no longer dread of judgment, but a grateful heart for what Jesus Christ has done on the cross on your behalf. So now I ask you, remember I asked you, do you fear God? And if you answered yes, is what motivates you the cross of Jesus? Because if it isn't, it's something false and it's something that's going to perish. So what is that driving factor? After all God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ, we simply love God. When we love God, we'll naturally seek to obey his commandments. That's why John writes in 1 John 5, 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. When I start dreading the things of God, I have to do a serious heart check. And it gets dangerous when I start saying, I think something's wrong with you, God. I come before him and I, God, examine me. Show me where it is in my life. Because I know that your commandments are not burdensome. I know that, Jesus, that you told us that if we're ever burdened or heavy laden, that we're to come to you and you're going to give us rest. And I know that your yoke is light. It's not heavy. So when I have a heavy yoke on my back, I know that that's not from you. John 14, 15, Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. We show reverence in our love to God and his son, Jesus Christ, by keeping his commandments. As I look at this passage, This week, I was thinking about the tension that exists there, this whole fearing God and keeping his commandments. Um, And to explain to you, uh, I I, I didn't grow up in the church, but uh, I I was saved in a, like a charismatic Pentecostal church. And it's there that, you know, I learned to love the Lord. I learned, I learned that, okay, God is real and he wants to be experienced. But like with every blessing comes a curse. My whole faith was just grounded in experience. And when the experience wasn't there, um, you know, then came the flood of doubt and everything. And it wasn't until years later that um, 
I started uh, reading the writings of some people, and I don't, I hate to put like a blanket statement over them, but maybe in the, in the, in the religious realm or theological realm, we'll call them conservatives, or I don't know how to label them, but a lot of them are dead, um, and I started, read, I started to read them, and uh, I just started to realize, wow, there is objective truth, and this truth is grounded in the person of God, and God never changes, right? Amen? Like, God, does, does God ever stop being good? <laughs> Does God ever stop being sovereign where he's like, ooh, that caught me by surprise. Like, oh, let's go to plan B, okay? Or let's scrap this. We're going to flood the whole earth, and we're going to do uh, plan B, okay? No, God is, like, there's never a moment that God is not sovereign or in control. And I just started realizing, wow, okay, there's objective truth, and there's experience, right? And that they go hand in hand. It's not one or the other, right? Where God wants us to experience him, Amen. And we know that when you, whenever you study the Old Testament, one of the things I so appreciate about the experiences of, like, Abraham and, and the different people in the Old Testament is that every time they experienced God, they gave him a name, right? That was grounded in objective reality and truth because it's who God is. And the perfect example is Abraham and Isaac. That, you know, we know that God told Abraham to go sacrifice Isaac. And um, make a long story short, you guys know how that goes. But we know that as, as, um, as God had provided a substitute for Abraham, that God gave him a name. And he says, you are Jehovah Jireh. The Lord is my provider. Because he experienced God and he experiences provision. And the beautiful thing about this story is it's not just about that God provides. It is about God providing ultimately. But it's a foreshadowing of greater things to come. That God was going to send his own son to be a substitutionary atonement on our behalf. To die for our sins. And it's beautiful. So I pray that you would, you would marry those two, that when we, when we talk about fearing God, all right, it's not that we would cower in fear or we look to God as some totalitarian dictator that is like just dishing out commands. No, he wants us to, to stand in awe of him. He wants us to experience his goodness. He wants us to know him as father, as loving father. He wants to be known as a savior. And my prayer is that whatever church tradition that you've grown up in, and I'm, I'm, I'm thankful for all of them, is that, one, you would, of, of course, always be looking to experience God, but that, two, you would also be like the Bereans in Acts. That anything that is ever taught, anything I say, anything anyone from the, from the pulpit or anything says, you need to test it. First John says, test the spirits. The Bereans, even they had the, they had the greatest preacher preaching to them, the Apostle Paul, and they examined his every word to see if they were true. We need to be diligent. As, 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 we need to be students. So, and I, I, pray that, but I pray that your faith would not just end in study as well. That as you're, uh, you know, there's a saying in theology, like we have to know uh, right belief, orthodoxy, but right, right orthodoxy will always lead to right orthopraxy. Orthopraxy simply means right behavior. Right? That, that as, we, as we ground ourselves in who God is, it's always going to lead to the right practice. Amen? Uh, I'm going to have the worship team come up. And I wanted us to spend some time in prayer. And I wanted us to ponder on a couple of questions. And uh, one, in your time of prayer, and this is something I pray you would sort out with the Lord. Honestly, do you fear the Lord? Do you fear God? And maybe some, some checkpoints for you could be was when was the last time you were amazed by God? 
Like, when was the last time that you, you, like, you were just in awe of what, of who he is and what he's done? And if it's been a long time, sort that out with the Lord. Okay, come before him. And I pray that as you, um, I pray that there are no way as we're teaching fearing God and, and keeping his commandments that it would come off as God is expecting perfection. It's not what I'm saying. It's not what God is saying. But rather, when you look at this commandment of keeping his commandments, aren't you thankful that repentance is part of that? That when you and I, we do stray from the path, right? God calls us to repent. It's, it's really, the, the, the figure is really like Jesus at a banqueting table. And I encourage all of you, spend some time studying food in Jesus. Okay? It'll, it'll blow your mind away. Jesus was so associated with food and drink that they called him uh, a, a glutton and a drunkard. And it was a big deal because when he would eat with sinners and the Pharisees would be so, like, blown away. It's like, your master is, you know, is a friend of sinners. And how they came to that conclusion is that he was at a table eating food with them, which meant that these are my friends. And if you're in Christ, you're a friend of, you're a friend of God. And even though we stray away, there's always a spot for you at the table. All he asks is that you would come back. So it's not asking for perfection. But be honest with yourself. Where are you at? Are you needing to repent? Then repent. Let the Holy Spirit work in you, and we pray that you would have a genuine change of mind. Have you been doubting his provision for your life? And many times I've done that. God, are you really going to provide? And I come back to Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I understand that as my father clothes the lilies of the field and he feeds the birds of the air, he's going to provide. He just asked that I would seek first his kingdom, his reign and rule. And all these things will be added unto you. Maybe for some of you, you need to... Uh, I don't know, you need to do something. <laughs> Maybe God has been putting in your heart to talk to a neighbor or talk to a coworker at work. Fear God, obey his commandments. Understand that when you're at work, you're bringing the kingdom there. And you're to pray, God, I want to see your kingdom continuously expanded in my place of work, in my home, and everywhere I go. Maybe for some of you, it's you need to stop doing something. I don't know what it is, but maybe for some of you, it's like you just got to stop doing it. That God has been like goading you into the side and, and you just need to repent. And don't let the goad like refrain you from it. It's not like he's goading you and he's keeping you there, right? He's just poking you. He's wanting to guide you the right direction. So as we pray, let's just close our eyes. Whatever you have to do to remove distractions. And let, let us spend some time just corporately in prayer together to God.
question I have for you is, God has made us to enjoy him, to enjoy a relationship that's thriving, living. And um, for a season of my life recently, I've felt that uh, my prayer life has been so dry, very mechanical, very over and repetitive. And uh, of course, you know, we're to go to the word and we're to seek him regardless. But um, I picked up a book by, uh, by a pastor by the name of Andrew Murray. And uh, if you read any of his books on prayer, I think you'll be blessed. And, you know, I've only read a small portion of it, but um, immediately the chapter that spoke to my heart was the sin of prayerlessness. And I was kind of taken aback. We're like, whoa, like, and uh, just began to devour that chapter. And Andrew Murray was just looking around, and uh, he wanted to see revival. And he just acknowledged that the church, we don't pray. We don't really believe, and we don't really pray. We don't... Um, we don't pray for the kingdom to, you know, to come. And, um, and he just realized in his own life that it was, it was really prayerlessness. It was a sin of prayerlessness. And that really what was rooted in this prayerlessness was unbelief. So a question I have for all of you is, what are you not believing? Because if your prayer life is dry as well, I'm not, I'm not asking, hey, do you pray enough? Or do you, you know, what quantity or what amount? No, but... Is your prayer life dry or is it full? And the question I have for you is, do you also suffer from that prayerlessness? And if not, trace it back to a disbelief. Maybe you don't believe that God is great, right? And so you're not praying, believing that God is great and in control of any situation you're in. Or maybe you're just so burdened by the opinion of others, you're really not believing that God is glorious and good. And once we understand that and we get to the sin of our prayer, or the root of our prayerlessness, it'll transform things. I just began just, just reading the Gospels again. I've been reading the Gospel of Mark and just simply coming to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I have no agenda other than wanting to know you and that my heart would be full of prayer and praise of your glory. Because Jesus, you said that when the Son of Man is lifted up, you'll draw all men. So I pray that in my scripture reading and in my prayer time that you would just lift yourself up so that I could be drawn to you. So let's just spend a little more time just processing prayer and and your relationship with the Lord. Father, thank you for the privilege of prayer. Lord, forgive me for not understanding that at times that prayer is indeed a privilege.
And Lord, um, I know that maybe there are some people in this room that maybe this is the first time they're praying all week, Lord. Or maybe there's some in this room that just also feel disconnected. And, and Lord, I'm just thankful, one, that you meet us where we're at. That all of us are on a journey and you meet us where we're at. And you don't ever want to keep us in the same place. You, you, you challenge us to move and to grow. And God, I also thank you that we can call you Father. And God, I'm praying for that too, that as, as we talk about fearing God, I'm praying, Lord, that um, I, I know that there are some in here that don't, maybe haven't had a great experience with their earthly father. And hence, they have a difficult time relating to you as their great and glorious Father. And I'm praying that you would just uh, shatter that disbelief, God. I'm praying that they would bring healing there too, Lord, that there are people here who have a hard time relating to you as a Father. Maybe in their prayer life, they don't even refer to you as Father. They refer to you as Lord or just God. But you told us, Jesus, that you prayed to your Father in heaven. You taught us how to pray. So I'm praying for that fatherhood just to, just to come upon all of us here, that we would really understand that the God we fear is a Father and that He loves us. And that if we are believers here, it's only because we're found children. And that God loves this entire world. And there's many lost children here in our city and to the nations. So God, we're also asking as we, as we learn what it means to fear you, use us in your plan. I pray that we would live for something bigger than ourselves, God. I pray that we would live for your kingdom and not our kingdom, our measly little kingdom and what we can make of our own lives. And Father, I just also pray for those that um, maybe have been struggling in the faith, that it's a battle every day. I pray that you would just encourage those that need to be encouraged right now because we know that your Holy Spirit, of course, is going to convict the world of sin, but, it's also, but the Holy Spirit is also the great comforter. So I'm praying that you would comfort those that are discouraged today, God. That you would also uh, just that you would shower your love on them, God, meaning that they would look to the cross and they would understand how much you love them, God. I pray for those that are apathetic and have been feeling complacent, God. And Father, we know that your word, of course, these truth sayings are like goads, and I'm praying that the truth of God would spur them, would wake them up, and would just push them to whatever it is you're calling them to pursue. Father, I know that you're calling all of us to pursue something, that you've put something there and I'm praying that this week we would respond. We would take a simple little step of faith, whatever it is, God. And we just thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you that you are kind, forbearing. We thank you that every day we can wake up and your mercies are new every morning. We thank you for new beginnings. So, God, I'm praying that as a church, we would grow in our fear of God, that we would step back and we would just stand in awe of you, God, and we would be blown away and amazed, God. 
and that we would understand that as we have, uh, we have the Spirit of God in us, the Spirit of God allows us to obey His commandments. So help us, Lord. We also know that we have an enemy, and the enemy is real. And at the same time, we're not to give him too much credit because, Jesus, you've already defeated him. His days are numbered. Help us just, help that reality, that truth, just be a reality in our lives. That we know that our enemy is limited. And that all power and authority has been given to Jesus. And we are simply to stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. And we will, Lord. We take on the full armor of God. And we stand in the fear of the Lord. And it's our longing, our heart's desire to obey you. And I pray, Lord, that the gospel would be the motivation of all of our obedience, Lord. That our obedience would be a response based on what you've done on the cross on our behalf. Thank you, God. We love you. In your son's awesome and wonderful name we pray. Amen.